the Russian podcast. Для меня это все непонятно. And he said, well, the plumber's coming in the morning. Today, we'll be talking about Tatars. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Russian Pod. I'm Lisan. I'm Ryan. And I'm Abraham. We have a very special guest today. I'm going to tell you about how we met. My grandparents used to read me poems by this Tatar poet. They were written by Shaukat Galif. And when I went to a women's march last year, I met three ladies at the metro station. We started talking, we decided to take an Uber together to the Pershing Square here in LA. I told them that I'm Tatar and I'm from Tatarstan. They told me that they have a friend who is also Tatar. And they connected me to her through Facebook. We started talking, we eventually met. And then it turns out that she is the granddaughter of this uh, famous Tatar poet and my grandparents, you know, used to read his poetry. Very excited to have her here. I'm very excited to be here. Tatar has some beautiful music. I'm going to play a little bit of... Actually, let's start with like an older music so that people understand how it like sounds like... in my young years we listen to more like pop music this is yeah yeah this is Henia Farhi I think the best part of that song is not the song, but the music video. It's just a bunch of old grandmothers being filmed. That is literally the, the music video. And they don't do anything, they just stare at you. Should we say like the instrument like you heard there, that was, that's like an accordion thing? Yeah. It's slightly different. And then we also, um, like a flute, kurai, is our like traditional, and then jahar kubas. It's pretty Mongolian. Yeah, Yeah, it is similar Asian oh, okay. in general. I think in general, yeah. like yeah. Tatar language has sounds like mm -hmm. um, oh, so just natural. It's like a Russian N with a little tail, but it's pronounced mm -hmm. and then there is sounds like eh, like very nasal sounds. But anyway, but now there's a new like generation of Tatars starting to make modern songs like rap. And this is probably the most popular song that was actually played on like Russian radio stations. This is by a singer called Tatarka, which means Tatar girl. But she's still Tatar and is so, you know, supposed to be Tatar language. I guess you could call it Tatar. There's a lot of light and vibe. But that's it. Like, that's good. She's like this modern singer. Um, there's lots of Tatars in Australia and she lives in Australia. Have you heard of Zulia Kamalova? 
No. She sings in Tatar, but it's very, you know, she kind of gave it a modern, modern twist. Back in, you know, this is like 2000s, I think. Mm -hmm. It was interesting because it was at that time where Tatar wasn't popular, you know? Yeah. Like, people were like, oh, you're from a village if you're listening you're to Tatar. those Tatar songs. It's yeah. like only grandmas. But then she came out and for a while some people were listening to her because she... Mm. She made it kind of modern, interesting. Yeah. It's more jazzy, I guess. So she gave it a kind of a different twist. That's very cool. Because oh. a lot of young Tatar singers, what they do that pop, like, like it's still that same, you yeah. know. I don't want to be mean, but I think the Russians were right. It is a bunch of old grandmas and the Tatar song. So I mean, they, they're just telling the truth. What's wrong with grandmas anyway? <laughs> Grandmas are fine. Grandmas You're are You're going to be a grandma music. someday. <laughs> no, that's not true. That's absolutely not true. Oh, but I, and I was reading the Tatar music is like pentatonic scale. So it's only like five notes. So that's similar Chinese music, I guess, and blues, yeah. I don't know that word either. You can pretty much learn the blues scale on a guitar in half a day. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's just the same thing in different areas. Oh, okay, I see. Oh, and Tatar, my grandma always said we have um, Hmong. It's kind of similar, I think, in that sense to like Arabic sense. Because I was talking to my friend from Egypt. He was saying they have that sense. Hmong is like sadness. Okay. But it's something different. It's like slightly different sadness. So I think Tatar songs, my grandma always said like all Tatar songs, they have the Hmong, you know. Hmong? All Tatar songs are pretty sad. Yeah, well, even like the happy ones, they yeah, have yeah, that yeah. mong. You know, it could be a happy song, but it will have that certain sadness. In America, we'd call it like a minor. It'd be a minor. Uh, any tone or any note that is in, in the minor scale oh, yeah. comes across as yeah. sad. Yeah, but also in Tatar music, you have this like, ah, mm -hmm. it sort of shakes yeah. and it's almost like cry and try to speak. You're like, I, I don't want to know. It's sort of, but in songs. Yeah. Lovely. Or like Shakira does that too. Yeah. Shakira does like a Tatar. Tatar style music. But I wanted actually to talk about um, Tatar foods. And I'm really excited that we actually did this podcast because I always told people that we had nothing to do with tuna Tatar and beef Tatar. And I was like 100% sure, 150% sure that we had nothing to do with that. And then today... I found out that apparently tuna tatar and beef tatar does come from Tatar. French developed the tatar sauce and the dishes like beef tatar and tuna tatar, they're originally, it's basically a shortening version of an actual name, which is like a la tatar. Mm -hmm. But the actual word tatar comes from the name of tatar, ethnic group, which is us. And I don't know how French got to it, but the Tatar sauce, which is like aioli kind of sauce, the name for it comes from the name of our ethnic group. So when you see beef Tatar and tuna Tatar on the menu, know that it comes from Tatars. But it still were made by French. It's not like comes from our recipes or something. Well, it has our name on it. <laughs> so it was inspired by us somehow. Well, what's Tatar food? Tatar food is just dough, 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 dough. It's yeah. just meat wrapped in dough and another dough. It's the best food ever. <laughs> So the actual, yeah, I was thinking maybe when back in the days Tatar ate like raw meat, which is what tuna Tatar and beef Tatar mm -hmm. is with like raw egg. But, you know, me growing up, obviously all of our dishes, something yeah. inside of it. So we had ishbishmak, which is fried dough with meat. We had mangti, which is steamed pastry with meat and potatoes. We had peramesh, 
Oh, piramesh is, is the fried dough. Is the fried dough. Ishbishmak is the one that's baked inside mm-hmm. the oven with meat and potatoes. Crisp and then there are triangles. Triangles, the yeah. Best. And then there is custard, which is basically like, it looks like quesadilla, but only potatoes in it, like mashed potatoes inside of it. What a terrible quesadilla. Do your family ever ate horse meat? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Tatars rely on horses, so, you know. Well, when you rely on it, they have to die eventually, right? <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do with a dead horse besides eat it? <laughs> yeah. Like, horse broke a leg, and it's like, oh, let's make a shashlik out of it. I join in on that. Well, it's like here, you know, people eat deer. Yeah, that's pretty strange, too, actually. Yeah. Rabbit. I, w- I worked at oh, a delicious. meat store here. You can't you sell deer. Yeah. In Minneapolis. And you can't sell deer, but you can. You, people would bring it to us. And we would make Polish sausage or any sausage they want. What was your job there? Did you actually have have to like cut? <laughs> <Meat maker>. uh, <laughs> no, I was just selling stuff and then oh, we worked okay. in the restaurant. I imagined you in the butcher shop, just like chopping. Heads I would off go in the back, you know. You, it was a Ukrainian one, so we made like head cheese to you know. Head oh cheese. yeah. Oh, gross. Okay. And I saw that you know, like the guys with the uh, rakes, just like uh, raking these like frozen pieces of uh, meat. Yeah, but no, our sausages were great. <laughs> yeah, once I went in the back of the shop, my manager came out with like like a head of the pigs, uh-huh. and he just had his fingers through the nose, and he was just like following, like, hey, hi, how are you doing? I mean, I know you guys are just. <laughs> Yeah, the way you're describing that process doesn't make us want to go back to eating meat. And then, obviously, horse meat, yeah, like, people can make stuff, like, one of the dishes that requires meat can be made with horse meat that's very traditional to Tatar culture. And then, one of my favorite things is chuck-chuck, which Americans don't seem to like very much, I don't know why, but it's basically little, like, honey noodles, like, drenched in honey, and then you put it together in, like, a little triangle or a little circle, and you just eat it. It's sort of like... Right, not a fan? It's like a pretzel. Chris was not a fan either. Yeah. None of my American friends. It's like a pretzel, but noodle pretzel? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That sounds gross. So imagine, like, ramen... I'm sorry, don't don't mean to insult, (laughs) but that sounds pretty gross. <laughs> Imagine no, the compactness of ramen noodles, how they're in like that square. Yeah. But a thicker noodle, about maybe it's a little lighter. bit larger. It's yeah, it's it's got a lot of air in it. Yeah. But it, it's it's both crunchy and chewy at the same time. Yeah. Well, because there's a lot of honey, so it gets stuck. My mom, the yeah. my mom, they, like people at her work, like every time she has to bring it, every time she goes back. So they loved it. They're mm-hmm. I have to put something on it in order to eat it. Otherwise, it just tastes. Well, because you're used to super duper sweet. That's true. You know, desserts here in the U.S. I called him when I sent him, like, a package of chak-chak from Russia. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'm eating it. I just microwaved it, put some ice cream on it. (laughs) And I was like, you are a disgrace to old Tatar people. It is really good when you microwave it, though. It's it's almost like a warm donut. It's pretty good. I recommend that. You just have to have tea with it, and that's all it is. Mm. Well, actually, my favorite pies is like not, not everybody you know the fish one the fish and rice mm. I don't know I love it yeah. what like is it called there's like a combination I don't know but I don't know if it's Tatar or Russian that's the yeah, thing I'm about Tatar sure. cuisine that it like it has so much influence from people mm. around Tatars because again we're like in the middle of Russia so some of it comes from in Mongolia like the manti comes definitely like Asian. oh yeah and that's then like pilaf like plov that's not 
originally Tatar. I don't think like Halva. I don't think it's originally Tatar. Isn't that? Isn't but I don't think it's originally Tatar. Halva is the one that's like made out of sunflower seeds, right? Yeah, I, that's definitely not Tatar. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's shredded uh, sunflower seeds that come in like a gray cube. And I also sent a package to Ryan, and <laughs> like he it. wasn't sure how to eat it. And then it sort of like started melting, and like all of the oils, all of the sunflower seeds started like coming out and it was just like laying in the pool of oil and he threw it away don't waste our food okay, just bring me food don't bring him anything anyway <laughs> it was it as if you me. shoved a whole bag of sunflower seeds into your mouth but it was only in the size of a spoon <laughs> yeah that's how rich and amazing it is <laughs> and then as far as drinks this is I, I really miss that about um, living in Tatarstan we had like five varieties of different milk products they were all just sour milk mm-hmm. so it was like Ayrat Katik Kefir, obviously, that might be Russian, but we had like a bunch of sour milk products that I really, really loved. And then Russians, obviously, and Tatar love tea. The Tatar version of tea, which is what my mom told me, at least, like, I don't know if your family drinks the same thing. It's like really strong tea with milk, plums, not like dried plums, Mm -hmm. and dried apricots. If we put milk, we don't put, but if we just without milk, then we put all the apricots and plums. Okay. Okay. Dry, usually. Dry yeah. yeah, but they sit there and they, you know. Oh, while it's brewing. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it makes it the tea a little sweet. So, like prunes, you know, they have the natural sweetness to them. Dried apricots, the same. So, it's like milky, strong, and sweet all at the same mm-hmm. time. I love and it. do you want to explain to the listeners how you guys drink tea? Yes. So, you pour it in a cup and then you have a saucer. You pour it in a saucer and drink it out of a saucer. And, you know, it takes skill to be able to pour it out out of a cup into a saucer without spilling anything. Only a good Tatar person can do it. Like a trained Tatar person. Yes, yes. Because that way it cools down quicker. So you have to drink it like... It has to be hot though, right? Like we always, you know, you can't drink cold tea. That's a disgrace. No, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, like we have dried meats too, but my dad was saying... How did they used to, how did that kind of get invented? Salted meats, they always on the road, yeah. right? So how do you keep meat from not going bad? So if they have a piece of meat, they'll just lay it over the horse and then they sit on top of it and they ride. They sit and on then, top of the meat? And then all the salts from the horse and from the person <laughs> just basically marinates the meat. Marinates and then it dries, is a, is a and, then it dries and then it becomes salami. Oh my god. Once again, none of those meat stories make me want to go back to eating meat. It's just like ass salt and like horse ass salt. Also, the whatever it's horse back. that horse is back. Okay. Oh my I god. heard yogurt has a very similar uh, origin as well. They would put it in sheep stomach, the milk, the back of a horse, and they go riding. And of course, it's gonna curdle because it's hot and it's moving around. And when in you get a sheep back, stomach. In a sheep stomach, and by the time you're you're out there, it turns into yogurt. Oh, yeah. And then some of the blood from sheep's stomach gets in and they open it up. They're like, oh, it looks like strawberries. Let's start putting strawberries in yogurt. I think that's how it's... No? Okay, no. <laughs> they take the blood out of the... It's not a live sheep that the <laughs> yogurt is inside. Fine. <laughs> my, my grandmother used to make sausages out of horses. Uh-huh. And I remember she would bring some and they were, like, really, really tough. Like, you had to really work on them to chew them. But the ones that we bought in Bahatlit mm-hmm. when we went to Russia with Ran, they were soft. And they, maybe it's just like the hot smoked or cold smoked version. Oh, maybe. Yeah. But it wasn't like what I'm used to. 
The ones that my grandmother used to make, they were delicious. I really liked those. Oh, so the ones that, that we got, mm, wasn't wasn't all that good. Yeah, it wouldn't really qualify as sausage. It was pretty uh, soft. I heard the sausage. quality of Bessifle in general has kind of gone down over the years. Mm. It's probably a, a practice that isn't really uh, done too often. Oh, we should say about Bessifle how, like, you know, these recipes of Tatar foods, you know, the spishmaks, like all this, like, it's kind of complicated, you know, process yes. of making, and that was always home food, you know? Yeah. It wasn't like here, you know, fast food kind of thing you can find anywhere. But then the store came about, Bechetle, how many years Which ago? means lucky. Yeah. At happy, least happy. 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, happy, sorry. Uh, yeah, at least 10 years ago, and it was just this boom, because they, in their bakery section, you can buy a whole pie, like, spishmak, you can buy all these, and they People said they tasted like homemade food, so a lot of times people would buy stuff and they say, I made it! <laughs> like if they, you know, invited people, and that's how it started, like it's as good as you made it at home. And Yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah, Tatar food, even more than Russian food, is so complicated and takes so long to make. I'll tell you a story how my grandma's uh, dough for like, like, like a, a croissant, like a puff dough, you know, she had like apparently the best puff dough. And her friend was like, okay, you need to show me how you do this. She, like, showed this recipe to a lot of things. So they were making it together. And, the, and then they were mixing everything. And then you have to knit it. Knit it. And then her friend is, like, kneading it. And she's like, so how long do we do this? You know, when do you know when to stop? She said, <laughs> my grandma says, once you start having uh, sweat drops between your butt cheeks, that's when it <laughs> What if you don't? You just you just gotta go at it. You can make salami at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Put it in between your butt cheeks. Ooh, yeah, delicious. In our village, I, I might have told this story before. All of the women in my family just excelled at making very straight, very like uniform, uh, narrow noodles, except for me. And they told me every time that until you learn how to do this properly and very fast, no one will take you as a wife. Because before someone gets married, they have to see how you cut the noodle. So I never learned. Yeah, I never, I mean, perfect. It was a big issue in my family. I don't know why. The only time my dad said something like that to me is when I, like, broke my nose. Because I had a giant head, so it always fall fall down. And, you know, just somebody will, you know, this will heal until she has to get married. (laughs) But it's like that saying we have. It's not like he was serious. Yeah, my parents were serious. (laughs) Uh, we're going to start talking about Tatar's history, where they come from. And I think Abraham has some information he wanted to share. I do. So, I didn't know that there was many different ethnic groups. I know in the Soviet Union there were many different ethnic groups, and each ethnic group had a republic. But I thought the Russia SSFR was just Russians. But mm-hmm. then I started reading, it's a Russia as a federation, which means it has tiny republics that are named after the ethnic groups. Some of them... Those republics are mostly Russian. Tatarstan is uh, 53% Tatar and 47% Russian, so it's kind of evenly divided. One of the interesting things about the Tatars, their origins are somewhat controversial. There's not a specific one point of origin, but a a lot of people point that they were intertwined with the Mongol, uh, the rise of the Mongol Empire. And they originated in uh, northeast Siberia near Lake Bakal. Oh, really? Yeah, they were semi-nomadic people were really good at agriculture and trade. And as the Mongol Empire spread westward into Russia, they were forced to join the the Mongols in the invasion. Originally, they believed that, I think around the 
like in yeah, the years 900, yeah. yeah, they they entered European Russia, the Volga area, which is, and they settled there. Yeah, and they were called Bulgars back then. Bulgars, yeah. Right? Volga the Bulgars. Bulgar state, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess back in the day to whatever, whoever nomadic people in that region they used to call Tatars, that's why there's so many now, you know, there's the Crimean Tatars, yeah. but we're mostly talking about the Volga Tatars, Volga Tatars. that's mm-hmm. what we're yeah. related to. And it, that area was sort of like a, the crossroads of a lot of different ethnic groups that, uh, the, what is known as the Great Migration. That is when the weather started to change and people, there were a lot of people in Siberia, like Hungarians passed by that area too. Oh, uh, the Mongols, a lot of different Turkic people, that, which is why the origin of the Tatars is very controversial. Yeah. I ran into that too when I was trying to figure out if they were nomadic or not, yeah. because it seems like they settle in areas, but at the same time somehow remain their identity, but also fight along with the Mongols, the yeah. Huns. Yeah, and because they were nomadic, they would settle, and but they could easily just pick up and leave again, depending on who, you know, if they were in favor of the invading forces or... You know, they needed to flee for their lives. But as the Mongol Empire spread, they settled in the Volga area. The main one for the Volga Tutas was the Golden Horde, one of the successor states of the Mongol Empire, and that's where the Volga Tatar ethnogenesis merged. For those people who don't know, the Golden Horde was Kanat that ruled Central Asia and European Russia, and they were the ones who... They made the Russians vassals. Vassals, oh, vassal? meaning, yeah, yeah. They, they subjugated them and they had to pay tribute. It's kind of like a lord system. Yeah, and gradually the the Russians would, you know, they would fight, some people would get pushed back, they would gain land. It was like a tug of war until Ivan Terrible finally defeated them. After that, they weren't assimilated into the, the Russian culture because they had their own uh, language, tradition, and religion. The Tatars became Sunni Muslims around the year late 900s to 1000 I believe after that it was a after they were subjugated by Ivan Terrible it was a a long process of discrimination there was um, attempts by Ivan the Terrible to Christianize them and a lot of Turkic groups were Christianized mm-hmm. like the Chuvash we have Christian Tatars too yeah they're called Mishar so mm-hmm. they are orthodox and they if they speak Tatar they speak it with an accent Mm-hmm. But th- th- there was already a political structure before the Russians got there, and we actually, Igul and I used to live in the city where we have a Kremlin, and Ryan had a chance to go there, and that was one of the forts there, where Ivan the Terrible had to conquer in order mm-hmm. to gain uh, that was basically the main, access basically. to Kazan. That was like the trade center, yeah, because of the rivers. There is still a tower there that's called Siumbike Tower. The story there is that the daughter of the leader of Tatars threw herself out of that tower, not to be conquered by Ivan the well, Terrible. Wasn't it that Ivan the Terrible, like he wanted to marry her, and yeah. then she told me, "I'll marry you if you build this tower for me, this minaret." Oh, okay. And then once he built it, she went up there and threw herself off. Very nice. I love that story. (laughs) I like that she asked him to build a tower first. That's like asking someone to make a knife so you can stab yourself. Yeah. Make a knife for me so I can cook for you. And that's kind of like our (laughs) Kazan tower of piazza, right? Because it's slowly, it's that, it's very ancient. Uh The ground under Kazan, you know, it's a lot of like... um, Empty space. It's a lot of wood. Oh, um... What's Rasputitsa? The muddy? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the it's a muddy it because that's why it's called Kazan. Swamp. It's a swamp. It's a swampy area because it, that's what's called Kazan. It's basically in this dip 
you know, it's we, located. We need to drain the swamp. So Donald Trump for president of so Pakistan. So this <laughs> How did Trump's name get into this? <laughs> so the tower is slowly actually falling, and they keep reinforcing it with stuff. But you could oh, really? see. You, you don't. See I don't like think that I noticed. Did you notice? Yeah, that the one that we climbed up, and your dad told me to go outside on the ledge. Uh, no, no, no. No, but they, they don't let you in to say in Bikan Tower. Oh, okay. Right? I don't think Are they so. Are they afraid that they you're going to throw yourself off it? I, I think they used to, but not anymore. It's very ancient. But yeah, yeah it's very old. It, you can see it. It's like slightly, slightly falling. I hear that. I heard that they keep reinforcing it. With oh, okay. Huh. It doesn't fall. You're interesting. I didn't know that it was built on the swamp. Well, I mean, the whole Kazan is kind of... Swamp. Remember when they were building, we have a metro system now, but when yes. they were building, there was a big issue. They were saying it's going to fall apart, and a lot of people actually didn't write it for the longest yeah, time. Yeah, I remember that. Um, gradually, um, they were incorporated into the Russian Empire, but they retained their language and their mm -hmm. culture. And certain aspects of uh, Tatar, uh, Volga Tatar uh, culture were respected, even by the Russians. They were really good uh, at agriculture, and that area of Russia is the meeting point of east meets west. A lot of trading routes pass by there, and migration routes of people. You're right next to the Fertile Crescent as well. Yeah, like r right north of it, mm -hmm. uh, north of it. So, which is how Islam spread to Tatarstan. From the, it went from Arabia up north uh, through the Caucasus. Um, Volga Tatars became some of the most loyal uh, subjects of the Tsar of, uh, of the Russian Empire. They were used uh, as personal, uh, the personal cavalry of the Tsars, uh, personal bodyguards. They were majority Tatar or? Uh, not majority, but a good portion compared to the rest of the population. That's kind of strange that you would entrust your nation with essentially another culture to guard them. Yeah, and that were you, you conquered. Yeah, that you've conquered and fit, fought with for hundreds are, of years. Tatars are just so fierce and so good at fighting that you just can't pass pass on that offer. Okay. I think. Okay, I'm gonna have to erase that. <laughs> oh man! I'm just kidding. So they were uh, used as uh, bodyguards for the Tsar, personal bodyguards, and. There was a sort of a cultural exchange where the Russian Empire would take the nobility, the Volga Tatars, and educate them in Russian ways. And this was used as a way to educate them, but also to, as a way of intimi intimidate them mm. into giving them an inferiority complex. Because they would take them to St. Petersburg and to Moscow to show them how, to show them how much better the Russians were, ethnic Russians were, and how more advanced they were in sciences and military. Subjugate them. Yeah. Make the, give them an inferiority complex, you know, so they wouldn't rebel. And, and there was no fear that they would be able to pick it up and go back and... Maybe they didn't believe they could, you know, ever overthrow them. Well, they certainly outnumbered them. Yeah, they outnumbered them. The Tatar population has always been relatively small compared to the ethnic Russians. It number from about half a million during the 17 to 1800s, and then it got up to about a million and a half to two million right at the beginning of the Russian Revolution. But uh, because of all the war turmoil and food shortages, it is believed that anywhere between half a million to one and a half million died from famine. Because of the process of uh, collectivization, what, once the Russian Revolution happened, uh, all the private farms were collectivized. I think all farmers suffered oh, because... Yeah, a, a lot of Russians would say that also a lot of Russian farmers perished. But when you compare the the demographics of Russia at the beginning of that time, it seems a disproportionate amount of ethnic minorities well, suffered. We, oh. could, we could also claim that there was a disproportionate amount of minorities who were in farming and 
you know, small trade. Small trade, yes. Yes. I've never heard that point of view before, but it makes sense, you know, if the numbers, if that's what the numbers say, because in schools they always taught us that a lot of farmers died from famine during that reform because basically they had to give up certain percentage of the food that they were creating on their farms, leaving not enough food for their kids. But we never heard any emphasis on minorities dying rather than like ethnic Russians. A factor that played into it was the land that was inhabited by the Tatars was very fertile land. It's um, so not most of the farming, but a substantial amount of farming took place. It's in between rivers, it's basin, swampy areas. It's a very fertile land. Certain aspects of it, you could say they were picked on because, not necessarily because of their ethnicity, but because of their location. Their occupation. Yeah, and their occupation, yes. Because Tatars have always been really good at agriculture and trade and craftsmen. That's what they were known for. And that's a throwback to during the Kanat. The Kanat and their old political structure. The last ruler of the Golden Horde, which is where the Tatars produced their ethnogenesis, the blending of the Tatar culture, was Ahmed Khan bin Kuchuk. It's a handful. Yeah. And it, it, the U's in Kuchuk have the little... almost looks like a smiley face. The two U's have the little oh. two dots. So I'm not <laughs> sure I'm saying that correct. But he was the last uh, ruler, and the Tatars, their political structure before they were invaded by the Russian Empire was an elective monarchy. So it wasn't uh, was hereditary, meaning that a council of elders would meet and elect the monarch. And it, since it wasn't hereditary, that monarch, if they had offspring, it wasn't a given that their offspring were going to become their successors. That was up to the, 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 the council uh, of elders. Yeah, so I think that ties into the religion of Tatars being Sunni Muslims, because uh, Sunnis believe that democratic process should take place when it comes to electing the next leader, where Shias, Shia Muslims believe that only predecessors relatives. of, only relatives of Muhammad are supposed to basically rule both the political and religious lives. And that's, I think, the main differences between Sunnis and Shias. And, well, Sunnis actually are 90% of all Muslims in the world, so Tatars, you know, tie into this majority of how Muslims are thinking. Uh, I read also in 1945 that um, Joseph Stalin accused 200,000 Tatars for helping the Germans. And those Tatars were mostly in the Crimean area, and he kicked them out and put them into Kazakhstan and, and Uzbekistan. They were forbidden to use the Tatar language, and they didn't regain their rights until 1956, when they started moving back into their homeland. Yeah, and finally in 2015, and I think 2014, both the Russian government and Ukrainian government admitted that what happened to Tatars was a crime against humanity and is now considered a genocide because one-third of Crimean Tatars perished either en route to Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan because they were transported basically in paddle trains. They didn't have any water or food. And so considering that, you know, elderly women and elderly men were transported, they didn't receive the care they needed, so they died basically on the way there. And then when they were dropped off, of course, there were no good conditions organized for them. And they were dropped off in the desert. Yeah, and of course a lot of them died 
once they arrived. And because they are Muslims and there's so much... Dietary restrictions. Uh, both dietary restrictions and also, I think Tatars tend to be very separated, like men and women tend to be separated. And once they were put in a cart together, I read in eyewitness accounts that one girl died literally from her bladder, bladder like exploding because she couldn't pee in front of men. Another witness account I read was once they arrived to Uzbekistan and they started offloading the cards. One of the guards or whoever was meeting them looked at this woman's head in, in surprise and said that I expected you to have horns. They told us you're going to have horns. So Tatars were really also painted as not human or evil. So, so there was basically this campaign of fear against Tatars because Stalin told everyone he was doing it because he thought that Tatars were cooperating with Nazis but others are saying because Tatars are Muslim they have sort of a special relationship with Turkey because they are Muslims as well and that they would support Turkey once Stalin decides to conquer Turkey so there were like other political reasons that motivated him to do that and right now even to this day, I recently had a conversation with my parents. So we are Tatars, uh, but we are referred to as Volga Tatars because we live right next to Volga. And then Tatars in Ukraine who live in Crimea, they're called Crimean Tatars. And many don't believe that we're related at all. And many think that it's not, even though we're both called Tatars, it's not the same people. But our languages are extremely similar. I, I think it's the same kind of people and the reason why Russians don't like us to think that we're the same people is because it is beneficial for them for us not associate ourselves with people who had genocide committed against them because if you know that your people were killed you would be upset but if you think it's a totally different population you might not be as involved in it which is the reason I think it took till 2015 2017 you know, to actually admit that the genocide was committed. Yeah, I did some DNA research um, online against the Volga and the Crimean Tatars, and the um, predominant 30% group for both of them is a it's an R1A group, so they completely share the northern Ukraine, Belarus, and Russian heritage. That's 30% of their, their ethnicity. The really only difference I found was that 18% of the Crimean Tatars' uh, DNA shows that they come from South Asia and Southeast Asia, whereas for the Volga Tatars, 16% of their heritage comes from North Europe, North Baltic, Scandinavian, and a place called Ugric. So that's really the largest difference I had. The next largest percentage was 7% and 9% respectively, and they both basically came from the, the Fertile Crescent, which backs up the... The Islamization of Islam. Well. And to back up, there are, I don't think we talked about different Tatars. So there are Tatars that live in Tatarstan, which is Volga Tatars, and this is who I am and Agul were Volga Tatars. There are also Tatars that live in Crimea, Finland, China, and some other areas like Siberia. There are some Tatars. The largest group lives in Volga. And I had an opportunity to meet a group of Chinese Tatars. They came to our school and they performed songs and dances. It was kind of like a cultural exchange. They look exactly like my dad's side of the family. And their melodies in their songs are 
I mean, almost exactly the same as ours. And their language I understood as well. So it was very interesting that they were Chinese, but yet I could communicate with them. That is a reflection on their nomadic heritage, how they spread with not just the Mongol Empire, but, you know, with the successor states, the Golden Horde. There was also a lot of alliances when the um, Muscovite Russia was uh, subjugated by the, the Tatars of the Golden Horde. There were alliances between the Commonwealth of Poland, Lithuania, and the Tatars to sort of keep the Muscovites in check, which is something unheard of because during the 1300s, 1400s, you know, you see like a, a Muslim nation like the Golden Horde aligning itself with a predominantly Catholic nation like Poland and the Commonwealth of Poland, Lithuania. They were yep. Tatarized, you know, so they... Tatarized. Tatarized. I, mean, I, don't, I don't even know if that's a word, but... <laughs> it is now. It is now, yes. <laughs> One of the aspects that uh, I read up is that it's almost an insult to an ethnic Russian to to point out that they look Asiatic in a certain way. Or it's it's an insult to say that they look Finnish or Finnic or Tatar. They view that as an insult. They're proud of their Russian heritage, but they also don't want to be confused for ethnic minorities. Oh, yeah. Russia definitely tends to be not exactly tolerant to people who look different. I think we call that racism. A racism. Mm, racism. <laughs> in America, it's called racism. I think, in general, from what I observed in my time living in Tatarstan, for the most part, Tatars are very friendly. And what Ryan said, there's pretty much like half and half of Russians and Tatars. And I've had a lot of Russian friends, still have a lot of Russian friends. We live side by side with Russians. We have mosques and we have churches and we coexist very peacefully it's a republic that is like in the middle of russia yeah i mean what are you gonna do you can't really I mean, even in the ancient like religious but like never you know women seem to yeah like women, women weren't made to cover up in the hijab or no it, it was and it, I, I think it has to do with the fact that, that uh, tatars lived under communism so it, it, but even it, before that i mean i don't think women you know covered up or uh, so the Tatar population is rising. Uh, currently, it's about it's estimated that six and a half million Volga Tatars exist. Half of them residing in Tatarstan, and their population is gradually increasing, not dramatically increasing, but they are rising in numbers because more Russians are dying of natural causes and not natural causes than uh, Tatars are. Huh? Australia is the biggest diaspora. That's so random. So, I know. Over by Sydney, or I'm not sure. Okay. Weird. How did you guys get to Australia? I don't know. Just swim, I think, in little boats and horses. I think that settles whether you're nomadic or not. <laughs> you're all the way to Australia. Tatar is one of the uh, Turkic languages. Turkic languages include like Azerbaijani, uh, Uzbek languages, and you know the way that we count is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. In, in Turkish, like bir ike ush dörtbesh altıcı desüyes tuğazun is the same. Mm-hmm. So like letter, I mean numbers are the same, and some of the other words also like are almost the same. So mm-hmm. uh, technically, if you really try, I guess, and use simple words, you can Tatar can understand a Turkish person. Yeah, it's just if I read it, I can probably understand it, but it, it's uh, I think Tatar is much softer. Mm. Like if I if Chris. You know, my husband asks me something to say something to her. Sometimes he's like, "Did you even say anything?" Because <laughs> it's just, just very silence. soft. It's just kind of, you know. But also, one interesting thing about it, it's a, I guess it's a, 
what's called an agglutinative language. Mm -hmm. It's uh, that's where opposite to other ones are called like I think fusion languages. So basically, we like keep the root of the word and then add to it, and you can create like really complicated words by adding yeah. and not changing. So basically, the way it works is that you take, say, the word house, and then in the sentence, you can add an um, ending that would indicate her house. Then you can add another ending that would indicate moving from her house. If it's a plural, like their house, there will be another ending. So you can add multiple endings to a word to make... It mean different things. Yeah, or yeah, like I was gonna use like this, you know, example like word unlash, for example, which is what like luck. Mm -hmm. And then you say unlash says, you add says, and it means like unlucky, you know. And then you say unlash says unlash It's somebody who made you unlucky. <laughs> and then you're like unlash says something that made you un you know it's just you can keep going and going and like adding to this word and there's no spaces no no it's all just one word but you could use the same ending. like and then you can keep going with mine yours theirs you know multiples and it's just one word and you just keep adding to it it gets yeah. pretty complicated pretty quickly because the word has so many meanings in it without any prepositions right so you just change the meaning with yeah. adding more and more letters. But then at the same time, I feel like they also say these languages, um, for example, Japanese is also a alternative language. They say they also live in the area of the brain where math is responsible, because I guess the adding part maybe, and logic, you know, so they say that kind of helps or something. So people who use that kind of language are gluten. It's like gluing, basically gluing. Oh so yeah. That, uh, so they're supposed to be good at math. <laughs> I, don't know, I am not. <laughs> I don't know, but you're like training me. It just lives in that area. You know? Oh okay. Looking at you know how Charlie learned, he picked up Tatar before other languages, and I think, and he started doing that on his own, where he would add the endings. Once he, I think, in his brain, you know, he got the structure. Yeah. And so maybe it is more intuitive almost what um i feel like it is almost easier than russian i found there was also a, a a link between mongolic and turkic language you have the same phonetic and grammatical as well as topological similarities so your vowels have the same harmony you lack grammatical gender and you have extensive agglutination yeah which you were saying is yeah, uh, yeah. japanese and Extensive uh, agglutination. Mm -hmm. That's like the gluing, you know, where we yeah. take... So they have highly similar phonetic rules and phonology between Mongolian and Turkic. You know, it sounds like glutinous, like we overeat, like our, you know... Or glutes, your butt. <laughs> your butt muscle. <laughs> I've never heard a glutinous mean something in grammar or something in, like, language. Never heard of the word before. Yeah. Never. And I studied linguistics in school in Tartistan, and <laughs> wow, so... They failed you on that one. <laughs> it's another well-kept secret of like <laughs> what they teach you in Russia. So, uh, Tatar songs are pentatonic using a glutinous language. Did I say that right? Okay. I can't tell you about the, the second part, I'm not sure. <laughs> 
Again, I can use this phrase to sound smart now when I talk about who I am. I don't think it works whenever, whenever you have to pause for three seconds to say <laughs> a glutathonic. <laughs> I didn't only pause, I also looked at her notes and read it. <laughs> and also, Tatar had a number of alphabets throughout the history. It started with, you know, the old Turkic alphabet, it's called Orhan. And then, um, you know, Arabic. We Tang Tatar was written in Arabic. And then during Soviet Union in the beginning, it was written in Latin. In 1939, I think for a while, right, even re in recent history, they were trying, Tatarstan been trying to uh, make Latin again as the official alphabet. Yeah, but they renamed all the streets. Russian uh, constitution, like, they put it back. They're saying, you know, the whole Russia should have Cyrillic. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, because, well, there's another thing. Once these Tatar schools started popping up, they started translating the school books in horrible Tatar. Oh. My, and my grandpa is, you know, he's a, he was an editor in the Tatar. Um, this is another grandpa, not the poet. Okay. And another one, he's also a writer, and he... he Both of your grandpas were writers? Yes. The other one, wow. he actually translated Crime and Punishment into Tatar. Really? Yeah. The other one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of writers, oh, yeah. and yeah. And uh, and also Kamal is my great grandma. Oh yeah. my god, he's my great grandma. Wow, you're like a celebrity. <laughs> but when he when my grandpa was reading our school books, he's like, "This is terrible." It's basically they took a Russian book mm -hmm. and they translated word by word. Oh my god, like so you can't yeah, yeah, so you can't understand. He's like, "How do you guys?" And basically, we would check out, we would find Russian, like math book, math textbook, and we basically learn by that in secret and then you know oh it's the only way you can understand i hope the textbooks are better now if they're teaching it in tatar you know math and all these like complicated i subjects. hope so that's the thing i think it was very hard to find good resources in tatar language even when you live in tatarstan i also remember whenever our university would accept kids from tatar villages and they obviously spoke tatar mm -hmm. and maybe not even any russian uh, people will make fun of them. I thought yeah. that it's so embarrassing for the nation to be making fun of Tatars. When you live in Tatarstan, mm -hmm. this is like a land of Tatars, and you think it's embarrassing for them to speak Tatar. It just never made sense to me. But there was definitely this cultural war, in a way, you know, it's on Tatar speaking Tatar. Like, it was not as good as speaking Russian. But I definitely see, now that I go back, that there are more and more say even shops that sell like Tatar themed you know clothing or Tatar souvenirs mm -hmm. and more and more people do speak Tatar I like to see that younger people you know speak Tatar and, and yeah. there's a lot of designers now using like cultural elements and they're making them modern you know because Tatars used to have oh yes we can segue into yes into uh, Let's do it. Um, clothing Tatars used to have, you know, amazing, like, embroidered boots. All those, I want those boots, the leather boots with embroidery on it. With, and I see them now a lot, like, modern designers trying to bring in. It is, we it, had colorful, like, the color was... They were, like, general. green, red, and white mostly, right? And they were, like, leafs, kind of, leafy kind of, like, designs. Yeah, flowery, like, very uh, graphical flowers, kind of. Yeah, I think we saw them in, like, some of the shops. They were super expensive. But, like you said, mm -hmm. they were 
more modern, but at the same time, like the pattern was from the old days. Mm-hmm. And back in the days, our grandmothers like used to wear them, and it was like mm-hmm. lame, you know. Women used to wear a lot of jewelry, jewelry, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of coins. A lot of coins. Coins Lots on of coins. The, and they like used usable coins. I think so. Yeah. They're yeah, like they're regular coins. They would like. Necklaces made out of coins and yeah. really heavy and uh, super heavy. Yeah. They used to say uh, you could hear a Tatar woman coming. Like back in Shatay, they say, "Oh, you really? could hear a Tatar woman coming." Yeah, and the symbol of Tatarstan is Akbars, which is white leopard, but it has wings. Ah, yeah. And we saw two creatures like that, not in real life, but like they were statues. Well, we were in real life. <laughs> we were, we were in real life. Creatures were not. There were statues in front of a marriage palace. Two Akbars, one was a female, another one was a male, and they had little Akbars babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it the looked female had a lot of tits. <laughs> it was straight out of Game of Thrones. Yeah, it was. It was pretty. It, it harkened back to like ancient middle Middle Ages. It yeah. Felt like. Have you seen the Tatar? Um, the, Kaz- the, Kazan, the marriage bowl. Yeah, the marriage bowl. It looks like a bowl, and they have you know two Akbars. Statues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were pretty incredible. I didn't do history of it. I just <laughs> looked it up and I was like, oh, that's right, White Leopard. Done. Okay. Moving Next. on. <laughs> no one's going to ask me any questions about how a leopard got wings. Sorry. Until next time. I'm Abraham. I'm Ryan. And I'm Lisan. Thank you for joining. <laughs>